Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of this Sunday morning political shows, where we usually take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California, and we're doing something a little bit different today. That's right. I'm Brendan Seil, your other co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And today, rather than talking about all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows, we are going to go to the movies. I think we've done this two times before, once with a documentary about Mike Wallace, and then we did it for Also Remember Brendan Broadcast News. Yes, we did. And so today, for this special summer episode, we are looking at the movie The Insider from 1999, a movie directed by Michael Mann, starring Al Pacino and Russell Crowe, as well as Christopher Plummer, of course. Christopher Plummer, classic. Always delivering. And in this program, in this movie, playing Mike Wallace. So, Two out of the three movies we've done this for involve Mike Wallace. <laughs> Listen, he was a major character and makes good journalism. Yes. Or no, he was a major character who made good journalism, which then leads to interesting content for movies. Absolutely. So in today's episode, which is, by the way, I should say, today is Sunday, August 15th, 2021. And we are going to be talking about the movie itself, how we feel about it from a movie perspective, whether it worked or didn't work for us. I guess that's our quality questionable, sort of. And then we're going to go into some issues related to journalism, related to politics, that might be applicable even today. And there were quite a few interesting ones. And by the way, I have to credit the person who suggested this, I was thinking we needed to have some maybe movie-related summer episode, and it just so happened that I came across on Twitter somebody who tweeted their list of kind of top movies related to journalism. And this was at the top of that list. It was someone named Asawin Susang. So at SWIN24. Your number one journalism movie is The Insider, and that's why we're doing it. And because we've never seen it before. So, Naomi, tell me about The Insider. What is this movie about? Uh, By the way, we're going to have audio clips, as we always do on Polylog, uh, but these will be of the movie. So for those who maybe didn't have a chance to catch the movie, hopefully a good portion of this conversation is still relevant and fun to listen to. Yeah, absolutely. So the movie is about a reluctant news source. Russell Crowe plays a research scientist who works for a tobacco company and he knows some juicy information about their negligence and he thinks he wants to talk about it. He's not sure. He's getting a lot of threats from the tobacco company and Al Pacino is Al Pacino in this movie and is (sighs) the producer for Mike Wallace. And he is the character who is really trying to coach and guide and really shepherd this story along and and really supporting this reluctant source. So it's really a movie at the end of the day about a producer and a source and how that relationship evolves in trying to get this story on the air and all the iterations of legalities and kind of business and just kind of life that interrupt the making of this story. 
Exactly. And it is based, as you said, and as we've talked about, on a true story. And this movie stays pretty true to the story of what happened here. Now, the people that we're talking about were real individuals. Lyle Bergman is, or was, we should say, was a producer for 60 Minutes who worked with Mike Wallace for 14 years. And Jeffrey Wigand was the director of research at the tobacco company Brown and Williamson. And the story covers a lot. I mean, it goes from, well, I guess I should say the, the movie begins in the Middle East in Iran, just kind of introducing us to the producer and Mike Wallace and some of those dramatic journalistic moments that are probably among the most dramatic you could imagine. But it goes, you know, it goes from the beginning of this story when we're actually seeing Jeffrey Wigand, the scientist, Russell Crowe, leaving, you know, cleaning out his office because he was kind of fired and we don't exactly know why, to the moment that is somewhat triumphant, somewhat kind of a finally moment when the interview airs on 60 Minutes after, oh my gosh, so many twists and turns to the story. So Naomi, what was it exactly that Jeffrey Wigand had to share with 60 Minutes. This is the early 90s. Everyone knows cigarettes are dangerous. But what was it What was it that he had to say? Well, the argument still was that they weren't sure if nicotine is addicting. And at the time, the tobacco company was using a known carcinogenic, known to them internally, a known carcinogenic in their cigarettes. And they were not disclosing that it was a carcinogenic. Yeah, essentially what they were doing is they were making nicotine more addictive. And they were doing that by adding like ammonium, which is another carcinogen, to the cigarette to do this, to kind of like boost the nicotine's effectiveness as a something that will make you want more and more and more cigarettes. And uh, the director of research was a part of that project and felt like he needed to say something about it. Well, he tried to kind of internally raise this up, and he was essentially pushed out because he wasn't supportive of the sales and marketing strategy, which was to deceive people. Yep. So general thoughts about the movie itself, the movie as a movie, as entertainment, as art, as something you're sitting down and watching. I don't know if you had the same experience as me, Naomi, but it felt pretty uneven. There were so many scenes with dramatic fireworks, but there were just too many. And the fireworks sometimes seemed to happen out of the blue or without much buildup or sense of purpose. We just seemed to zoom around a lot from scene to scene to scene. It was too much. It was too much script, too much movie, too much Al Pacino. Every scene was like 8% longer than it needed to be. It was too much. (laughs) Too much movie. Too, yeah. I would say it was not it was not as nearly as entertaining as I thought it would be. I was pretty frustrated because I just felt like they should have focused on the heart of the story, which is this relationship between the producer and his source. And they tried to encompass everything about this news story instead. Yeah. And the way it was filmed. So there was a sort of a, a realness to it, a cine, cinema verte or 
very, I don't know, I've only seen it written, uh, quality to it where you feel kind of the realness of some of these moments. Like, for example, we feel the discomfort of Russell Crowe's character, Jeffrey Wigand, who's sitting in the lobby of his former employer as he's being called up to meet with the CEO again. He's been kind of summoned. And we've all kind of sat uncomfortably in a lobby and had someone we don't know, like, call our name and have to go up the elevator. Like, we know what that's like to uncomfortably wait. And it felt real. And there are scores of moments like that that have that sense of reality but the problem is that we don't always know why russell crowe is sitting in the lobby like i didn't know where he was the lobby of what building meeting with who like we barely know anybody's name in this movie we're introduced to characters sometimes in interesting ways there are ten thousand white men between the ages of 45 and 65 yeah like it's it's confusing there's one moment ten thousand there's one moment (laughs) where Al Pacino's character, the producer, calls up some guy who's flying a plane. He looks like he looks like he's like an airline pilot. I think he's like an airline pilot, but apparently he's a lawyer with the attorney general's office in Mississippi. But I think he's a pilot for like the next 10 minutes. And I'm like, I don't understand. What is this source who's a pilot who has a phone? Throughout this movie, we see people, including the producer... There's so many making calls on payphones, but then we're also in a world where you're calling a guy who's a pilot in a plane. Like, I don't, I don't know get wh- it. I don't understand what kind of budget they had. They wanted to shoot everywhere. Yeah, literally everywhere. Al Pacino's character has a nameless wife, a nameless kid, a nameless stepkid, <laughs> a giant house in Berkeley, and a vacation cabin on the beach. Yeah. All of these things are not necessary for his character in this movie whatsoever. You could just give the guy one office. Yeah. And it, the whole it, movie have a could be office. like him moving bet- from his office to, you know, talking to Russell Crowe. And then with Russell Crowe, I am not kidding you guys. Russell Crowe, <laughs> the scientist, the tobacco scientist, is the same exact Russell Crowe the scientist or theorist from A Beautiful Mind. He plays them exactly the same. I mean, exactly the same. There's even a moment where (laughs) he's now teaching high school, this scientist. (laughs) He was like a senior vice president, but I guess he, he, this is true, right? He's teaching high school. And so he's putting equations up on the blackboard (laughs) to a classroom. And it's like, this is a beautiful mind we're watching now. <laughs> I thought about it when he was like pacing around the house all paranoid. And it's like, this is a beautiful mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, there there are issues with this movie. Just I can't get over. I can't overstate how confusing it was. Like, you know how I'm talking about Russell Crowe's been summoned by the CEO of his company sitting in the lobby? Well, I had no idea what lobby that was. So I had no idea who the guy was who was talking to him. I didn't know he was the CEO of the company. At first, I'm like, okay, maybe he's a lawyer with CBS. Oh, no, maybe he's a lawyer with the tobacco company. And then, like, minutes later, like, when the scene's over, I'm like, oh, that was the CEO of the tobacco company. I had no idea. So it it just doesn't work. The movie works when we know why characters are where they are and what they're doing. Like, there's this whole series of events early on when the reporter, the the producer is trying to connect with Russell Crowe, and that works very well because there's, like, some fun sleuthing, and they're sending messages through fax machines, which is very quaint. 
but then it it really falls apart i have to be honest about this at the end of the movie events spin out of control and we as an audience have no idea why we're cutting from one scene to the next why al pacino is screaming at this moment versus the last moment like what's the motivation where is this going it's very confusing and just to just to kind of wrap up these like general thoughts on the movie i think you're right naomi that like the movie should have focused on key relationships and it just didn't we see these characters but we don't really know them we don't get a sense of their personalities their sense of humor their their true relationships with with each other there's a moment which we're going to play some of the scene from which i think is one of the most powerful where Mike Wallace, the reporter, confronts the producer about a breach in their friendship. And it's a powerful scene. But very little work was done in the movie to make us feel and know and understand this relationship that has been breached, this friendship. Wallace at one point says to the producer, we've worked together for 14 years. And me as an audience member, I'm like, really? I had no idea. Like, I saw them working together, but I didn't know if they'd worked together for a week or... I certainly didn't think they'd work together for 14 years because the movie did little work to establish the trust and the bond that existed between them. So then when I see this powerful scene that Christopher Plummer is, you know, acting through, acting about this friendship that's being broken, I don't really know the friendship that was broken. I'm just seeing the breaking. It's it just doesn't land. There's not as much impact. Yeah, and the last thing we'll say for real, for real about our general thoughts is just the women are nameless. You you just have weepy wife, supportive wife. That's about it. There's the hustler researcher, and then there's the feisty lawyer. Yeah. Those are the women in 1999. All the women in Hollywood. And none of them have names. Yeah, that is true. Oh, and then diversity is like a joke, but yeah. I'm sure diversity in newsrooms was a joke in the early 90s to begin with. My favorite part was that... <laughs> At one point, Al Pacino, the producer, calls a colleague of his or a friend of his at the Wall Street Journal. It's a jam-packed meeting, and suddenly there are four black men working at the Wall Street (laughs) Journal. But every other news instance or, you know, news setting, there are literally no black people. (laughs) Okay. Okay, sure. So uh, those are our general thoughts about the movie itself. But we want to talk about some key points in journalism that we felt are worth discussing. So here's the first. It's one of the most exciting journalism discussions in the movie, I feel. And it's where we see the team of producers and Mike Wallace sitting together at 60 Minutes, huddling up and talking through the issue of this possible source trying to determine what the story is, what isn't what isn't worth, you know, broadcasting and figuring out how they can go about go about getting the source to talk. The first voice you hear is Al Pacino and he's just kind of like put a VCR tape in with a C-SPAN broadcast where they watch all these CEOs of big tobacco talking at a congressional hearing and saying, "Oh no, nicotine's not addictive. It's not addictive." So, first voice is Al Pacino, who's playing the producer, Lowell Bergman, and then you'll hear Mike Wallace, Chris Plummer's voice, and a number of other staffers. He referred to this, the seven dwarfs. What seven dwarfs? The seven CEO of Big Tobacco referred to this, said they should be afraid of him. I assume afraid of what he could reveal. Now, you tell me, what does this guy have to say that threatens these people? 
Well, it isn't cigarettes are bad for you. Hardly new news. No shit. What's this? What that is, is tobacco's standard defense. It's the we don't know litany. Addiction? We believe not. Disease? We don't know. We take a bunch of leaves, we roll them together, you smoke them. After that, you're on your own. We don't know. So I think this is a real snapshot of the journalism that takes place before the cameras get rolling. And I think that's what this movie gets right. I just wish we spent as much time on it as possible trying to kind of think of the angle. How do you get through to your source? How do you convince them? And and I think that's a real accomplishment of this movie is that it's not a movie. Mike Wallace is in it as a character, but this movie's not about him. It's about his producer working it and, you know, his team really trying to figure out how to make it happen. Yeah, and to that extent, like, the conversation of what's the real story here, right? I mean, people know cigarettes aren't healthy. They get that. And that's not news. So what is the news? What is worth telling people? What is worth spending all this time and energy on and letting your audience know, like, we should talk about this. This is something you need to know that you didn't know before. And that's a high bar to cross, right? And that's what they're trying to understand here, where they've been approached by a source, but they don't really know what the source has. And so the conversation continues, this scene continues, and they get to talking about public health, which I felt, you know, we have to (laughs) include this clip because it's about public health trumping all sorts of other things in life, including legal agreements, at least in the view of Mike Wallace. Take a listen to this discussion about public health trumping confidentiality. Because of this guy's confidentiality agreement, he's never going to be able to talk to you. That's not good enough. This guy is the top scientist in the number three tobacco company in America. He's a corporate officer. You never get whistleblowers from Fortune 500 companies. This guy is the ultimate insider. He's got something to say. He wants to say it. I want it on 60 Minutes. doesn't matter what he wants. Am I missing something? What do you mean, Mike? I mean, he's got a corporate secrecy agreement. Give me a break. This is a public health issue, like an unsafe airframe on a passenger jet or some company dumping cyanide into the East River. Issues like that. He can talk. We can air it. They've got no right to hide behind a a corporate agreement. Pass the note. They don't need the right. They got the money. The unlimited checkbook. That's how big tobacco wins every time on everything. They spend you to death. 600 million a year in outside legal. Chadburn Park, uh, Ken Starr's firm, Kirkland and Ellis. Listen, GM and Ford, they get nailed after 11 or 12 pickups blow up, right? These clowns have never, I mean ever. Not even once. Not even with hundreds of thousands dying each year from an illness related to their product have ever lost a personal injury lawsuit. On this case, they'll issue gag orders, sue for breach, anticipatory breach, and join him, you, us, his pet dog, the dog's veterinarian, tie him up in litigation for 10 or 15 years. I'm telling you, they bat a thousand every time. He knows that. That's why he's not going to talk to you. This question of NDAs is actually super fascinating and something we've seen quite a bit the last few years, especially in the Me Too movement, where we know that there are companies that, you know, require or force NDAs onto their employees and then things are settled privately and, you know, the the victims are never able to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a powerful issue. And, well, 
that one that you're discussing is not necessarily, we would say, a public health issue. It is an issue of public safety. Right. Right. And yet these things continue. I really found the the argument of Mike Wallace, he's just so dismissive of corporate secrecy. He's like, what? Give me a break. This is public health. I kind of don't believe it. It's just <laughs> like he'd have been in the American lexicon, American media for 50 years. Like, okay. <laughs> but I think it is interesting, the example he gives there about an unsafe airframe on a passenger jet, right? Or a company dumping cyanide into the East River. Those are instances where we might consider them accidents on the company's part, right? Or in the case of the cyanide, like a man-made disaster, right? But I feel like issues of public health, and in particular an issue like cigarettes, where people, you know, it's not like they're putting it in people's water, right? They're putting it in a product that people go out and buy. They choose to buy it. People choose to buy it. And they choose to buy it knowing lots of things that, that it's not safe, right? And so it's kind of a different... You could think of it as a different thing, this like broad idea of public health versus a possible disaster, an unsafe airframe on a jet or whatever, even though the impact in lives could very well be greater. I would just note that this is just one of the many legal challenges or legal conundrums that this team faces. They're constantly faced with legal challenge after legal challenge, trying to convince this source to come forward or to make it possible for him to even come forward or then to air it. And so I think they do a good job of presenting kind of this team atmosphere of like, how do we think through this? Which is interesting in retrospect, because it's something that they'll have to do for (laughs) for months. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This became front and center in an explosive scene with a lawyer from CBS Corporation. And it's kind of the interaction or the overlap between CBS Corp and CBS News and really the conflicting interest in protecting the business and protecting the news. And the first voice you will hear is played by, and we can see because we actually have the script in front of us, Helen Caparelli. She is the lawyer. I thought we'd get together because there's a legal concept that has been getting some new attention recently. Tortious interference. If two people have an agreement, like a confidentiality agreement, and one of them breaks it because they are induced to do so by a third party, the third party can be sued for damages for interfering, hence tortious interference. Interfering? That's what we do. I think what we're trying to tell you is that it happens all the time. This is a news organization. People are always telling us things they shouldn't. We have to verify if it's true and in the public interest. And if it is, we air it. And after we corroborate it, that's why we've never lost a lawsuit and run a classy show. Anything else? And 60 minutes verification is exact and precise. And I don't think it would hurt to make sure you're right on this one. Why? You think we have liability? What's the CBS News position, Eric? There's a possibility it's rather remote. But one we have to check on, Mike. I've retained outside counsel to do exactly that on a segment, I might add, that's already rife with problems. What does that mean? Rife? I'm told unusual promises were made to Weigand. Only that we would hold the story until it was safe. And I'm told there are questions as to our star witness's veracity. His veracity was good enough for the state of Mississippi. 
our standards have to be higher than anyone else's because we are the standard for everybody else. Well, as a standard, I'll hang with is this guy telling the truth? Well, with tortious interference, I'm afraid the greater the truth, the greater the damage. So this, uh, this scene reminds me like the, you can definitely see the dismissiveness that the journalists have to basically everything they're being told from corporate where they're like, yeah, that's our job is to interfere. You know, this is what we do. You know, how, how dare you question us? And, oh, you're saying the segment has is rife with problems, rife. Like, wh- what is that? How, it really reminds me of a conversation I had with someone who was kind of high up in the business at Reuters, Thomson Reuters. And this person was telling me that Reuters corporate was trying to motivate the journalists to get them to feel competitive with other news organizations like, you know, Reuters, we have to come first, you know, we have to be ahead of AP, we have to be ahead of Agence France, we have to be ahead of others. And I remember this person said to me, like, I I feel way more connection with the reporters at other news gathering places than I do with the executives who are telling me to treat them like, you know, these other reporters as enemies or competitors. Like, to hell with you. Like, I'm not a Reuters person first. I am a journalist first. And these other journalists are my compatriots, not the people who have, you know, are paid by the same company. Yeah, it's about kind of respecting the work and kind of finding honor in the journalism itself and saying to hell with your business priorities. And indeed, in this instance, those business priorities caused the company to hold and and the journalists themselves to hold on releasing the interview, right? They they did not put Jeffrey Wigand's face on television to tell his story. They did kind of like a half measure that left a lot of things unsaid. But this movie doesn't just cover the intersection of journalism and business. It also covers the impact that that journalism has on the people that are being reported on, on the sources like Jeffrey Wigand. I mean, we see this scientist go from his big house at the country club on the golf course to essentially his family falling apart, him getting a divorce, having to... Downsize the house. Downsize the house for sure. Find a job working at a school. And be harassed continuously. Absolutely. It's a huge, huge impact on Wigan's life. And he's concerned that he could essentially just be arrested at any time. There's one point where it's like, by telling his story, he has now violated the law in the state that he lives in. And therefore, and violated a gag order, can be arrested at any time. When he returns to that state. Yeah, exactly. Because he was in another state to yes. provide his testimony. So it, it's it's a huge impact on him. And at one point, he's speaking with the producer, Lyle Bergman, about just what the value is in all this. I'm just a commodity to you, aren't I? I could be anything, right? Anything worth putting on between commercials. To a network, probably we're all commodities. To me, you're not a commodity. What you are is important. You go public and 30 million people hear what you got to say, nothing, I mean nothing, will ever be the same again. You believe that? No. You should. Because when you're done, a judgment is going to go down in the court of public opinion, my friend. And that's 
the power you have. You believe that? I believe that. Yes, I believe. You believe that because you get information out to people, something happens. Yes. Maybe that's just what you've been telling yourself all these years to justify having a good job, having status. Maybe for the audience, it's just voyeurism, something to do on a Sunday night, and maybe it won't change a fucking thing. And people like myself and my family, I left hung out to dry, used up, broke, alone. Are you talking to me, or did somebody else just walk in here? I never I saw any of that. No, no, exactly. Don't evade a choice you got to make by questioning my reputation or 60 Minutes with this cheap skepticism. I have to put my family's welfare on the line here, my friend. And what are you putting up? You're putting up words. Words. While you've been dicking around some fucking company golf tournaments, I've been out in the world giving my word and backing it up with action. So if this was a a debate on polylogue that we had just heard, I'd say, hmm, well, Lyle Bergman, the producer, Al Pacino there, probably could have helped his case by providing some examples of some real changes that he actually saw come about as a result of 60 Minutes. But instead, he gets kind of offended and starts yelling. And gets all defensive. Yes, gets defensive. So not necessarily the best approach there. Because indeed, there are some legitimate questions and issues raised by Russell Crowe here. Yeah, I mean, and I think so many times when we think of the subject of news sources, they are transactional relationships with a journalist and that news source. And that news source has to go back to their community or go back to their daily life and has to figure out if and how they can kind of return to it. And depending on the story, it as in this case... It's transformational, right? Yeah, there can Bergman be... goes back to his same house. Russell Crowe, the scientist, does not. Yeah, yeah. And it's so interesting because it almost sounds like the argument is, you know, you put it on TV and nothing happens. But I think what Jeffrey Wigand is getting across here, Russell Crowe's character, is something happens, but it could be very negative, right? Very, very negative on their lives. And we've seen that, you know, we see that today a lot of times when people are in the news and then they end up getting harassed online. They get death threats. There's so many instances of negative results of people just stepping into the limelight for whatever reason. They're not even breaking, uh, breaking news. They're just doing their job sometimes. Absolutely. And at least Wigan here has the foresight and kind of the educational training and to be able to kind of think of the implications there are so many news sources or news stories where the subjects of those sources are not given that same don't have that same opportunity exactly and you know ultimately as we see in this story Wigan does put everything on the line he has a huge negative impact and then as we mentioned cbs news makes the call that they're not going to run the full the full interview Initially. Right. And then the producer, Al Pacino's character, then kind of has to do a whole like workaround kind of exposing CBS's decision and kind of defending the work that they had done in terms of verifying the source. Yeah. Essentially, he like spills the beans to other news organizations that, exactly. s- that CBS was afraid of a lawsuit from this tobacco company. And that CBS was in talks about getting acquired and was worried that could ruin those talks. That leads to what I think of as one of the most powerful scenes, and I mentioned earlier, 
where Mike Wallace confronts his producer of 14 years about what he did leaking the story about CBS's internal machinations. I never left a source hung out to dry ever, abandoned, not till right fucking now. When I came on this job, I came with my word intact. I'm gonna leave with my word intact. Fuck the rules of the game. Hell, you're supposed to know me, Mike. What the hell did you expect? You expect me to lie down? Back off? What, get over it? In the real world, when you get to where I am, there are other considerations. Like what? Corporate responsibility? Are we talking celebrity here? I'm not talking celebrity, vanity, CBS. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about when you're near the end of your life in the beginning. And what do, you, what do you think you think about then? The future? In, in the future, I'm going to do this, become that? What future? No. What you think is, how will I be regarded in the end? After I'm gone. All along the way, I suppose I made some minor impact. I did a Iran Gate and the Ayatollah, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Saddam, Sadat, etc., etc. I showed them thieves in suits. I spent a lifetime building all that. But history only remembers most what you did last. And should that be fronting a segment that allowed a tobacco giant to crash this network? Does it give someone at my time of life pause? Yeah. Mike, in my, you and I have been doing this together for 14 years. This is today's New York Times. In it is the whole soldier's story of what went on inside our shop. And in the editorial, it accuses us betraying the legacy of Edward R. Morrow. The silences there are just so big in that clip. It's, it's such a powerful scene to go from Lyle Bergman just yelling, as we've seen him do so many times, to, like, the quiet power of Mike Wallace's complete disappointment in his partner of 14 years. Right. These are peers who essentially see the situation so very differently. And it's kind of devastating for each of them, realizing how far the other is. And what an interesting take from the Mike Wallace character here that, yeah, certainly he's concerned about his own personal legacy, but also what are the bigger implications of the decision, right? I mean, if you are told by people in the know who are likely to know that by running a story, you could crash your entire network and the legacy of that network, 
is it really worth that story? And I think, you know, in a journalism ethics class, it might be easy to say, of course it is. But does that mean the story doesn't get out in any other way? Does that mean, like, I don't know. It's not, I don't think it's an easy choice. Right. And I think the scene is trying to portray it as such a gray decision. And the fact that Bergman, the producer, sees it as such a black and white decision is kind of the big distinction. Yeah, absolutely. You know, fast forwarding ahead here to the end of the movie, they've broadcast their original piece. The full piece. The full piece. The story has broken. Wigand is teaching and winning awards for teaching in Kentucky. And Mike Wallace is going on and they're talking about the next the next thing they're going to do on 60 Minutes. And Bergman resigns. And Mike Wallace can't believe it. He's like, what are you talking about? We... We got past that. Are you kidding me? And And Bergman can't get past the fact that his word, his reputation has been so tainted in trying to make this story happen. Yeah, that he can't promise sources that he's really going to follow through with his side of the bargain. Right. So these clips, these moments in the movie, like if you just had these clips, you'd be like, wow, what a movie. But my goodness, is there so much other stuff in there that kind of gets in the way of the heart of the story? There is so much extra fluff. So much. So one thing I heard somebody say about this movie was that it was a good journalism movie and that the good journalism movies are those that talk about the failures of journalism rather than necessarily the successes of journalism. And I thought that was a very interesting point. Uh, Another journalism movie that I know, I think you and I watched together was Shattered Glass. Remember that? Oh my gosh, like 15 years ago or yeah. something. I About I bear- the reporter who was fabricating. Was it Philip Glass, right? Philip Glass, yeah. I don't remember the movie at all, though. But he was fabricating stories. And that was a powerful one, too. I, I do think that these really invite a lot of interesting moral issues and situations and it's not just reporters are the heroes the whole time. Right. And I think that's, I, I will say, that's what this movie does well. It shows all the work that happens before and after an interviewer and interviewee are on camera. That That's just one tiny sliver. And there's so much work. There's so much prep and there's so much editing and there's so much negotiations to make it happen. And... And I think there's something to be said for that because so many times people consume news and all they see and all they think about is what was presented to them. And I think this movie challenges that notion. Totally. So stepping away from it, how does it inform the way you look at the Sunday shows? Well, it makes me really curious about their teams more than anything. Yeah. Yeah. And the work that goes in ahead of time. Totally. And also, you know, you'd love to sit in on those meetings like we heard in our first clip that we played where they're trying to decide what's what's the story for the day and is this a story or what's the angle i think that's very exciting exciting moments 100 percent. all right naomi well that closes another one of our polylog goes to the movies yeah episodes we only go once a year apparently (laughs) (laughs) yeah we'll see we'll see you know, there's not. It's not like every movie is about politics or journalism. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So we're not going to be talking about a Marvel movie here, I don't think, unless we get into the Clark Kent journalism. Wouldn't that be interesting? A whole movie about just Clark Kent and one of his stories barely mentions Superman. No, but, thank you. Well, that actually, that'd be pretty good, I think. All right. So, what is our dialogue challenge this week? I think our dialogue challenge would be 
Like what's a piece of pop culture that has challenged your thinking about the news or about pop culture or about media and like more broadly? So whether it's you want to watch a movie from 1999 with Russell Crowe and Al Pacino overacting their faces off, you could do that. (laughs) Or particularly Al Pacino. There was so much yelling. He was just yelling at everybody. Yeah, but Russell Crowe did overacting in his own kind of way. Anyway, we're over that. Quiet, like. Yeah. His broody, his broody anger, anxiousness. Yeah. Oh my God. Broody, anxious men on, in movies from the 90s. Woof. Anyway, but whether it's this movie or it's Spotlight or it's The Morning Show or even Hacks, which is kind of examining women in comedy, you know, pop culture in another way. I think there's just so many interesting stories that are being told that kind of show us different angles of things that are in our kind of like in the ether (laughs) but we only see one side of it yeah the behind the scenes and and all the work that goes into it that's always fun to think about absolutely and if you have any other feedback for polylog at the movies for future episodes the next time we go on a trip please email us at podcast at polylog.com you could always tweet at me as well at soro naomi underscore and you're welcome to tweet or send us a message if you disagree with our take on the movie. I mean, I'm sure there's some out there who love it. Um, we'd love to have your thoughts and feedback as well. You can always reach me at Beastidal on Twitter, and you can reach the show at Polylogcast. Thanks, everyone, and we will talk with you next week with an all-new Newsy episode. Excited to be back. Talk to you then. Bye. Bye.